Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination, Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Whitlow. Today's tale is set in 1666. The setting, Adrianople in the Ottoman Empire, modern-day Turkey. A middle-aged preacher named Sabatai Zevi, held captive since his arrival there, mulls over a difficult choice. Tomorrow he'll be brought before the Ottoman Sultan, Mehmet IV, and be told to make a choice, a Monty Hall problem if ever there was one. Though in this case there is no behind one door there is a car, behind two doors goats option. If only there were goats. Every door, it seems, has death and dishonour behind it. For close to a decade, Zevi, a rogue Kabbalist rabbi, has been claiming to be the true son of God and Messiah. It is his proselytizing which has gotten him into this mess. Tomorrow he must choose between an instant execution, a trial by arrows, or to wear a turban. Before we discuss the option he chose, we should tell the tale which brought him here. Sabatai Zevi was born in Smyrna, Ottoman Empire, in late July or early August 1626. He was born to a Sephardic Jewish family, meaning his ancestors had been given a similar Monte Hall problem in Spain or in Portugal, following the Alhambra degree of 1492. The Christian rulers, having finally ousted the Umayyad Muslims, then turned on the region's Jewish citizens and offered them a chance to 1. convert to Christianity and stay, 2. remain Jewish but abandon all belongings and leave immediately, or 3. be executed. Sabatai's ancestors chose to remain Jewish and move to the other end of the Mediterranean. Sabatai was intensely religious, studying to become a rabbi. In his studies, he discovered a series of mystic Jewish texts called the Kabbalah. You may recall this was the sect Madonna became enamored with in the early 2000s. While by and large Jewish in their tenor, these texts were heretical as they claimed to give the practitioner a direct line to God. In 1648, Sabbatai claimed he had spoken with God, and God had revealed he was his true father. He had been born to lead the Jewish people back to the Holy Lands, thus bringing about the end of days and eternal life hereafter. When it became clear to the rabbinate of Smyrna that this charismatic young heretic was getting a following, they sent him packing. Ultimately, this would not stop him. Over the next few years, the charismatic Zevi gathered a large following amongst the Jews of Europe and the Middle East, known as the Sabbateans. Sabbatai was hardly the first claimant to the Jewish Messiah in history, and he would not be the last. He did, however, have some backing in Christendom for their own eschatological reasons. As Zevi was building his following, increasing numbers of Christians, often referred to as millenarians, believed the world was about to come to an end. The victory of Puritanism in the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell's new model army deposing and executing Charles I in 1649, had been a sign. The next sign would be that the ten lost tribes of Israel returned to the Holy Land. These Christians did not believe that Sabbatai was a messiah, but they thought his success would bring on the return of their messiah, so they got in behind him. Both groups believed 1666 would be the year it all happened. On Jewish New Year 1665, Sabbatai Zevi made a public statement surrounded by his followers. 
The Messiah was ready to start the revolution. He would travel to Constantinople to quote the man himself, riding on a lion with a seven-headed dragon in the lion's jaws. His second in charge, Nathan of Gaza, upped the ante, stating Sabatai would place the Sultan's crown on his own head. Well, little did he know how prophetic that statement would be. The Ottomans caught wind of the speech and kept a close watch for his arrival. On arrival, Sabatai Zevi was arrested. It seemed initially he would simply be left to rot in jail, but a few months after he was jailed, Sabatai was caught trying to order a hit on a rival Jewish messiah from within prison. The vizier of Adrianople, Sultan's top administrator in the city, had him summoned. This was when Zevi was given his choice. Behind door one, vizier ceases all messing around with him. Sabatai would be impaled. This, by the way, is what will happen if he makes no choice at all. Behind door two? Well, Sabatai claims to be the messiah and to have supernatural powers. Tomorrow he can prove it to the sultan. Zevi is to stand before a company of archers while they empty their quivers into him. A son of God can surely stop all the arrows in midair, right? Door 3. Since Sabatai has shown so much interest in the Sultan's headwear, he will find one of the Sultan's turbans waiting for him on a table. Put on the Sultan's crown, accepting that if you do, you will be renouncing your claims to divinity and your Jewish faith. In doing so, you will be converting to Islam. Well, maybe this is a car option, to be perfectly honest. The turban comes with a fancy house, a big salary, and a job with very few duties. So stopping to think about this for a second, what does Sabatai Zevi choose? Does he make the same choices as Sephardic ancestors? Must stay true to the cause, regardless of the cost? Does he do nothing? The short answer, Sabatai Zevi was no martyr. He picked up the turban, adjusted it to make sure it wasn't crooked, then went into the next room to say hello to Mehmet IV, his new boss. Now before I close this first half of the episode, I should quickly mention, what happened to all his followers? Well, maybe you'd expect mass suicides, riots, disavowals of the Messiah. Well, actually a large number of these followers converted to Islam as well. They adopted the name the Donma. Back after this break. The second part of the tale takes place in a suburban home in Oak Park, Illinois. The time and date? Well, around 6pm, 21st of December 1954. A dozen or so suburbanites, just regular Americans really, gather around the lady of the house, convinced she has supernatural powers. They have been camped out of the house for several days now. Many have sacrificed everything to be there. Earlier in the day they may have sung Christmas carols on the lawn to onlookers. They stood outside for some time, gazing skyward, hoping their visitor from Clarion, Sonata, would just arrive already. Perhaps feeling the glare of the camera, they retreated inside. If Sonata can traverse galaxies, surely he'll have no trouble finding 847 West School Street. The dozen or so people in the house believe the world will end tonight, deluged by a giant flood. They are the select few to be saved by an alien race who have looked down on Earth for eons. Curious onlookers and reporters have gathered outside all day, waiting to see what happens, or maybe what doesn't happen when nothing happens after all. Amongst the believers, a small group of interlopers, led by psychology lecturer Leon Festinger. The lady with a direct line to the aliens? 
Festinger identifies her as one Marion Keach. In the years since, she has been identified as Mrs. Dorothy Martin. One presumes the other named figures in this tale are noms de plume also. Dorothy Martin was a woman who believed in various forms of mysticism. From a young age, she'd been drawn to the theosophical movement of Helena Blavatsky. This led to her studying an American offshoot, which would later influence New Age spiritualist movements, Guy and Edna Ballard's I Am movement. From there, she discovered Opspa, a new Bible. I'm sorry, I probably am mispronouncing that. A spiritualist tome allegedly written by automatic writing, where the writer is merely a conduit for a supernatural force providing them the information. By John Newborough in 1882. This finally led Dorothy to Scientology. Something about the writings of its sci-fi author, L. Ron Hubbard, just clicked with her. In April 1954, Martin began trying to use automatic writing to speak with her deceased father. She allegedly found more than she was looking for. First, she claimed earthbound spirits were speaking through her, but she soon claimed she was receiving astral messages from across the universe. First, the mysterious elder brother spoke through her, then aliens from the planets Clarion and Cirrus. By mid-April, she claimed she was in constant contact with a Clarion alien named Sonata. Word spread amongst other spiritualists of her conversations with Sonata, and Martin gained a small following. On 23rd July 1954, Sonata stated they would fly past Lion's Field on 1st of August. A dozen people went to see the aliens. No one saw a spacecraft that day. But Dorothy and a number of others recalled a strange man who stopped to speak with them. The man subsequently disappeared into thin air. While seven attendees walked, now convinced Dorothy was a grifter, the others were swayed by lecturer and former missionary, Dr. Thomas Armstrong, that something must have happened. That man was odd. He must have been one of them. He must have wiped our memories of the spacecraft, right? On 2nd August, Sonata wrote through Dorothy, confirming the doctor's hypothesis. He also warned Dorothy, for the first time, something bad was about to happen. Sonata wrote again on the 15th of August. There would soon be a huge flash of light in the sky, followed by a flood which would engulf North and South America. On 27th August, Sonata stated the whole world would flood. He provided a date, 21st December 1954. Dr. Armstrong sent notice of a revelation to as many newspapers as he could. One paper, the Lake City Herald, ran the story in a small article on the back page in late September. Professor Festinger happened to be reading the Herald that day. Spotting an opportunity to study the effects on a group of a strongly held belief being obliterated, surely there can't be a great flood, let alone a UFO, he devised a plan to infiltrate the group. In the months leading up to 21st December, Dorothy picked up several new followers, beside Professor Festinger and his assistants. There was Fred Purden, a student who had fallen out with his parents over joining the group. He is so tied up in preparing for Armageddon, he will flunk his whole year. Whereas Laura Brooks, who has given away all her earthly belongings, because who needs earth stuff on Clarion, right? Susan Heath, a fanatic who has fallen out badly with a dorm mate and has been banned by the college from proselytizing, is another acolyte. As the day draws near, those who work make a pact to hand in notice. Mark Post walks out of the hardware store. Edna Post was running a daycare centre. The extremely judgmental look from her boss makes it abundantly clear she has no job to return to if Sonata doesn't come for her. 
Bertha Blatsky packed in a job as a secretary. Dr. Armstrong is fired. 21st December plays out as follows. 10am, Dorothy gets a message. At the hour of midnight, you shall be put into parked cars and taken to a place where you shall be put aboard a porch. It's a UFO. Dorothy is told be prepared for a message every hour on the hour. Throughout the day, members arrive, press set up, onlookers gather, and some well-wishers pop into the house to wish them well on their journey. There are no messages from Sonata. 11.15pm, a message from Sonata finally comes. He tells them to put on their overcoats and prepare to leave. They will send another message when they are overhead. Followers remove any metal on them, including underwires in their bras and zips, as forewarned by the aliens. 12 midnight. Nothing happens. 12.05am, one of the followers notices one of the clocks on the wall still says 11.55. They all decide it mustn't be midnight yet after all. 12.10am, Sonata sends a message, something akin to traffic as hell, we'll be there as soon as we can. 12.15am, the phone rings. It's not ET phoning, but reporters. What's happened? Have the aliens arrived yet? At 2am, a younger follower leaves, stating his mother's told him she would call the cops if he wasn't back by 2. Unshaken, the others state it's probably a good thing. He has the least commitment of the group anyway. At 4am, the first seeds of doubt crop up. One of the followers bitterly comments they have given up everything, burned every bridge. They know they should leave, but they have nothing to return to. They will have to stay until the bitter end. 4.45pm. Finally, a new message from the aliens. They're no longer coming, though they wanted to explain how a bigger thing these believers had done tonight. Through their show of great faith, they have saved the planet. Earth will no longer flood. The people of Earth can thank them, and them alone, for that. Humankind is again in God's good graces. At 5am, a PS from the aliens. This news is to be released immediately to all of the newspapers. They do, finding little tidbits along the way with which to fit their narrative. There were small earthquakes in Italy and California that night. They must have been the first rumblings of the great disaster Dorothy and her followers had averted. At this point I should drop back to the story of Sabotai Zevi, and to add a little bit of context I conveniently left out last time. Sabotai Zevi claimed a number of times the world was coming to an end, and he was there to usher in a new golden age. In 1648, when he first announced he was the true messiah, he also claimed the world was coming to an end that year. When thrown out of Smyrna, circa 1651, he had built up a large following, many of whom sacrificed everything to follow him. Going from strength to strength, a bandwagon effect happened. More people on board made it less crazy to follow the heretic. Add to this the more people gave, the more justifications came, explaining why you should follow him. Tales arose of Sabbatai performing miracles. The movement took on a life of its own. By the time he returned to Smyrna to make his Jewish New Year's speech, he was welcomed as a hero, a local boy made good among the Jewish diaspora there. This built on top of his already inflated image. With flow-on effect on top of flow-on effect, across Europe, Jewish populations began to party. The Messiah had come. He was going to defeat the Turks and lead them back to Jerusalem. Many thousands of them packed up their belongings and made the pilgrimage to see the great Sabbatai Zevi. In cities where trade was largely dependent on the Jewish community, like in Amsterdam and Hamburg, they all but ground to a halt. 
When Sabatai Zevi was arrested and taken to Adrianople, Muslim citizens mocked the Jews in the streets with chants of, Is he coming? Is he coming? If they didn't feel committed to this guy yet, this mockery pushed them closer to the edge. To almost all the Jews, this guy was their guy. Thousands of Jews picketed outside the prison, demanding his release. The assassination plot may have been the last straw, but Sultan Mehmet IV was feeling immense pressure over this. The last thing he wanted was a civil war or a bloody insurrection. The Turks saw their best chance to get out of this mess bloodlessly was to try to trick Sabatai Zevi into converting to Islam. And when he did, of course a number of these dogma would follow suit. The longer you're committed to something, the harder it is to accept hard truths about that thing or that person. Even if this runs contrary to everything you have previously stood for. Did the absurdity of the conversion matter? No, because when one is suffering from cognitive dissonance, the word was coined by Professor Festinger, by the way, you find a way of bending reality to reflect your facts. It is dangerous to think of the cognitively dissonant as dumb. They are smart enough to seize little bits and pieces and dissimulate them into a narrative which matches their preferred reality. The post-truth society is not a new thing. It pops up into existence numerous times over history. It's never really left us. To quote Leon Festinger, Someone with a conviction is a hard person to change. Tell them you disagree and they turn away. Show them facts and figures and they question your sources. Appeal to logic and they will fail to see your point. If only there were a figure in recent history who epitomised this phenomenon. Thanks for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes are written by me, Simone Mutlow. Produced and all music, yours truly. Visit the blog at www.historyandimagination.com. We'd love it if you followed us on the social media. Links in the liner notes. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a positive review on the podcatcher of your choice. We'll be back in two weeks for more Tales of History and Imagination. <laughs>